Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 33 of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 33 The Bearer of the Tidings. It was very late the next morning when Lady Audley emerged from her dressing room, exquisitely dressed in a morning costume of delicate muslin, delicate laces, and embroideries, but with a very pale face, and with half circles of purple shadow under her eyes. She accounted for this pale face and these hollow eyes by declaring that she had sat up reading until a very late hour on the previous night. Sir Michael and his young wife breakfasted in the library at a comfortable round table, wheeled close to the blazing fire, and Alicia was compelled to share this meal with her stepmother, however she might avoid that lady in the long interval between breakfast and dinner. The March morning was bleak and dull, and a drizzling rain fell incessantly, obscuring the landscape and blotting out the distance. There were very few letters by the morning post. The daily newspapers did not arrive until noon, and such aids to conversation being missing— there was very little talk at the breakfast-table. Alicia looked out at the drizzling rain drifting against the broad window-panes. "'No chance of riding to-day,' she said, "'and no chance of any callers to enliven us, unless that ridiculous Bob comes crawling through the wet from Mount Stanning.' "'Have you ever heard anybody, whom you know to be dead, alluded to in a light, easy-going manner by another person who did not know of his death, alluded to as doing this or that, as performing some trivial everyday operation, when you know that he has vanished away from the face of this earth, and separated himself forever from all living creatures in their commonplace pursuits, in the awful solemnity of death. Such a chance illusion, insignificant though it may be, is apt to send a strange thrill of pain through the mind. The ignorant remark jars discordantly upon the hypersensitive brain. The king of terrors is desecrated by that unwitting disrespect. Heaven knows what hidden reason my lady may have had for experiencing some such revulsion of feeling on the sudden mention of Mr. Audley's name, but her pale face blanched to a sickly white as Alicia Audley spoke of her cousin. "'Yes, he will come down here in the wet, perhaps,' the young lady continued, "'with his hat sleek and shining as if it had been brushed with a pad of fresh butter, and with white vapours steaming out of his clothes, and making him look like an awkward genie just let out of his bottle.' He will come down here and print impressions of his muddy boots all over the carpet, and he'll sit on your goblin tapestry, my lady, in his wet overcoat, and he'll abuse you if you remonstrate, and will ask why people have chairs that are not to be sat upon, and why you don't live in fig-tree court, and— Sir Michael Audley watched his daughter with a thoughtful countenance as she talked of her cousin. 
She very often talked of him, ridiculing him and inveighing against him in no very measured terms. But perhaps the baronet thought of a certain Signora Beatrice, who very cruelly entreated a gentleman called Benedick, but who was, it may be, heartily in love with him at the same time. "'What do you think Major Melville told me when he called here yesterday, Alicia?' Sir Michael asked presently. "'I haven't the remotest idea,' replied Alicia rather disdainfully. "'Perhaps he told you that we should have another war before long, by Ged, sir. Or perhaps he told you that we should have a new ministry, by Ged, sir. For those fellows are getting themselves into a mess, sir. Or that those other fellows are reforming this, and cutting down that, and altering the other in the army, until, by Ged, sir, we shall have no army at all, by and by. Nothing but a pack of boys, sir, crammed up to the eyes with a lot of senseless schoolmaster's rubbish, and dressed in shell-jackets and calico helmets.' "'Yes, sir, they're fighting an ood in calico helmets at this very day, sir.' "'You're an impertinent minx, miss,' answered the baronet. "'Major Melville told me nothing of the kind. "'But he told me that a very devoted admirer of you, a certain Sir Harry Towers, "'has forsaken his place in Hertfordshire, and his hunting-stable, "'and has gone on the continent for a twelve-month's tour.' Miss Audley flushed up suddenly at the mention of her old adorer, but recovered herself very quickly. "'He has gone on the continent, has he?' she said indifferently. "'He told me that he meant to do so if—if if he didn't have everything his own way. "'Poor fellow! He's a dear, good-hearted, stupid creature, "'and twenty times better than that peripatetic, patent refrigerator, Mr. Robert Audley.' "'I wish, Alicia, that you were not so fond of ridiculing Bob,' Sir Michael said gravely. "'Bob is a good fellow, and I'm as fond of him as if he'd been my own son. "'And—' "'And I've been very uncomfortable about him lately. "'He has changed very much within the last few days, "'and he has taken all sorts of absurd ideas into his head, "'and my lady has alarmed me about him. "'She thinks—' "'Lady Audley interrupted her husband with a grave shake of her head. "'It is better not to say too much about it as yet a while,' she said. "'Alicia knows what I think.' "'Yes,' replied Miss Audley. "'My lady thinks that Bob is going mad, but I know better than that.' He's not at all the sort of person to go mad. How should such a sluggish ditch-pond of an intellect as his ever work itself into a tempest? He may move about for the rest of his life, perhaps, in a tranquil state of semi-idiocy, imperfectly comprehending who he is, and where he's going, and what he's doing, but he'll never go mad." Sir Michael did not reply to this. He had been very much disturbed by his conversation with my lady on the previous evening, and had silently debated the painful question in his mind ever since. His wife, the woman he best loved and most believed in, had told him, with all appearance of regret and agitation, her conviction of his nephew's insanity. He tried in vain to arrive at the conclusion he wished most ardently to attain. He tried in vain to think that my lady was misled by her own fancies, and had no foundation for what she said. But then again it suddenly flashed upon him, that to think this was to arrive at a worse conclusion. It was to transfer the horrible suspicion from his nephew to his wife. She appeared to be possessed with an actual conviction of Robert's insanity. To imagine her wrong was to imagine some weakness in her own mind. The longer he thought of the subject, the more it harassed and perplexed him. It was most certain that the young man had always been eccentric. He was sensible, he was tolerably clever, he was honourable and gentlemanlike in feeling, though perhaps a little careless in the performance of certain minor social duties. But there were some slight differences, not easily to be defined that separated him from other men of his age and position. Then again it was equally true that he had very much changed within the period that had succeeded the disappearance of George Talboys, 
He had grown moody and thoughtful, melancholy and absent-minded. He had held himself aloof from society, had sat for hours without speaking, had talked at other points by fits and starts, and had excited himself unusually in the discussion of subjects which apparently lay far out of the region of his own life and interests. Then there was even another region which seemed to strengthen my lady's case against this unhappy young man. He had been brought up in the frequent society of his cousin Alicia, his pretty, genial cousin, to whom interest, and one would have thought affection, naturally pointed as his most fitting bride. More than this, the girl had shown him, in the innocent guilelessness of a transparent nature, that on her side at least, affection was not wanting. And yet, in spite of all this, he had held himself aloof, and had allowed others to propose for her hand, and to be rejected by her, and had still made no sign. Now love is so very subtle in essence, such an indefinable metaphysical marvel, that its due force, though very cruelly felt by the sufferer himself, is never clearly understood by those who look on at its torments, and wonder why he takes the common fever so badly. Sir Michael argued that because Alicia was a pretty girl, and an amiable girl, it was therefore extraordinary and unnatural in Robert Audley not to have duly fallen in love with her. This baronet, who close upon his sixtieth birthday, had for the first time encountered that one woman, who out of all the women in the world had power to quicken the pulses of his heart, wondered why Robert failed to take the fever from the first breath of contagion that blew toward him. He forgot that there are men who go their ways unscathed amidst legions of lovely and generous women, to succumb at last before some harsh-featured virago, who knows the secret of that only filter which can intoxicate and bewitch him. He had forgot that there are certain jacks who go through life without meeting the Jill appointed for them by Nemesis, and die old bachelors, perhaps, with poor Jill pining an old maid upon the other side of the party-wall. He forgot that love, which is a madness, and a scourge, and a fever, and a delusion, and a snare, is also a mystery, and very imperfectly understood by every one except the individual sufferer who writhes under its tortures. Jones, who is wildly enamoured of Miss Brown, and who lies awake at night until he loathes his comfortable pillow, and tumbles his sheets into twisted rags of linen in his agonies, as if he were a prisoner, and wanted to wind them into impromptu ropes. This same Jones, who thinks Russell Square a magic place because his divinity inhabits it, and who thinks the trees in that enclosure and the sky above it greener and bluer than other trees or sky, and who feels a pang, yes, an actual pang of mingled hope, and joy, and expectation, and terror, when he emerges from Guilford Street, descending from the heights of Islington, into those sacred precincts. This very Jones is hard and callous toward the torments of Smith, who adores Miss Robinson, and cannot imagine what the infatuated fellow can see in the girl. So it was with Sir Michael Audley. He looked at his nephew as a sample of a very large class of young men, and his daughter as a sample of an equally extensive class of feminine goods, and could not see why the two samples should not make a very respectable match. He ignored all those infinitesimal differences in nature which make the wholesome food of one man the deadly poison of another. How difficult it is to believe sometimes that a man doesn't like such-and-such such a favorite dish. If at a dinner-party, a meek-looking guest refuses early salmon and cucumbers, or green peas in February, we set him down as a poor relation whose instincts warn him off those expensive plates. If an alderman were to declare that he didn't like green fat, he would be looked upon as a social martyr, a Marcus Curtius of the dinner-table, who immolated himself for the benefit of his kind. His fellow aldermen would believe in anything rather than a heretical distaste for the city ambrosia of the soup-tureen. But there are people who dislike salmon, and whitebait, and spring ducklings, 
and all manner of old established delicacies, and there are other people who affect eccentric and despicable dishes, generally stigmatized as nasty. Alas, my pretty Alicia, your cousin did not love you. He admired your rosy English face, and had a tender affection for you which might perhaps have expanded by and by into something warm enough for matrimony, that everyday jog-trot species of union which demands no very passionate devotion, but for a sudden check which it had received in Dorsetshire. Yes, Robert Audley's growing affection for his cousin, a plant of very slow growth, I am fain to confess, had been suddenly dwarfed and stunted upon that bitter February day, on which she had stood beneath the pine-trees talking to Clara Tallboys. Since that day the young man had experienced an unpleasant sensation in thinking of poor Alicia. He looked at her as being in some vague manner an encumbrance upon the freedom of his thoughts. He had a haunting fear that he was in some tacit way pledged to her, that she had a species of claim upon him, which forbade to him the right of thinking of another woman. I believe it was the image of Miss Audley presented to him in this light that goaded the young barrister into those outbursts of splenetic rage against the female sex which he was liable to at certain times. He was strictly honourable, so honourable that he would rather have immolated himself upon the altar of truth and Alicia than have done her the remotest wrong, though by so doing he might have secured his own comfort and happiness. "'If the poor little girl loves me,' he thought, "'and if she thinks that I love her, and has been led to think so by any word or act of mine, I am in duty bound to let her think so to the end of time, and to fulfil any tacit promise which I may have unconsciously made. I thought once—I meant once, to—to make her an offer by and by, when this horrible mystery about George Tallboy should have been cleared up, and everything peacefully settled. But now— His thoughts would ordinarily wander away at this point of his reflections, carrying him where he had never intended to go, carrying him back under the pine-trees in Dorsetshire, and setting him once more face to face with the sister of his missing friend, and it was generally a very laborious journey by which he travelled back to the point from which he strayed. It was so difficult for him to tear himself away from the stunted turf and the pine-trees. "'Poor little girl,' he would think on coming back to Alicia, "'how good it is of her to love me, and how grateful ought I to be for her tenderness! How many fellows would think such a generous loving heart the highest boon that earth could give them?' There's Sir Harry Towers, stricken with despair at his rejection. He would give me half his estate, all his estate, twice his estate, if he had it, to be in the shoes which I am anxious to shake off my ungrateful feet. Why don't I love her? Why is it that although I know her to be pretty, and pure and good and truthful, I don't love her? Her image never haunts me, except reproachfully. I never see her in my dreams. I never wake up suddenly in the dead of the night, with her eyes shining upon me, and her warm breath upon my cheek or with the fingers of her soft hand clinging to mine. No, I'm not in love with her. I can't fall in love with her." He raged and rebelled against his ingratitude. He tried to argue himself into a passionate attachment for his cousin, but he failed ignominiously, and the more he tried to think of Alicia, the more he thought of Clara Tallboys. I am speaking now of his feelings in the period that elapsed between his return from Dorsetshire and his visit to Grange Heath. Sir Michael sat by the library fire after breakfast upon this wretched rainy morning, writing letters and reading the newspapers. Alicia shut herself in her own apartment to read the third volume of a novel. Lady Audley locked the door of the octagon antechamber, and roamed up and down the suite of rooms from the bedroom to the boudoir, all through that weary morning. She had locked the door to guard against the chance of any one coming in suddenly, and observing her before she was aware, before she had had sufficient warning to enable her to face their scrutiny. 
Her pale face seemed to grow paler as the morning advanced. A tiny medicine-chest was open upon the dressing-table, and little stoppered bottles of red lavender, sal volatile, chloroform, chlorodyne, and ether were scattered about. Once my lady paused before this medicine-chest, and took out the remaining bottles, half absently, perhaps, until she came to one which was filled with a thick, dark liquid, and labelled, Opium, Poison. She trifled a long time with this last bottle, holding it up to the light, and even removing the stopper and smelling the sickly liquid. But she put it from her suddenly with a shudder. "'If I could,' she muttered, "'if only I could do it! And yet why should I now?' She clenched her small hands as she uttered the last words, and walked to the window of the dressing-room, which looked straight toward that ivied archway under which any one must come who came from Mount Stanning to the court. There were smaller gates in the gardens which led into the meadows behind the court, but there was no other way of coming from Mount Stanning or Brentwood than by the principal entrance. The solitary hand of the clock over the archway was midway between one and two when my lady looked at it. "'How slow the time is,' she said wearily. "'How slow! How slow! Shall I grow old like this, I wonder, with every minute of my life seeming like an hour?' She stood for a few minutes watching the archway, but no one passed under it while she looked, and she turned impatiently away from the window to resume her weary wandering about the rooms. Whatever fire that had been which had reflected itself vividly in the black sky, no tidings of it had as yet come to Audley Court. The day was miserably wet and windy, altogether the very last day upon which even the most confirmed idler and gossip would care to venture out. It was not a market-day, and there were therefore very few passengers upon the road between Brentwood and Chelmsford, so that as yet no news of the fire— which had occurred in the dead of the wintry night, had reached the village of Audley, or travelled from the village to the court. The girl with the rose-coloured ribbons came to the door of the ante-room to summon her mistress to luncheon, but Lady Audley only opened the door a little way, and intimated her intention of taking no luncheon. "'My head aches terribly, Martin,' she said. "'I shall go and lie down till dinner-time. You may come at five to dress me.' Lady Audley said this with the predetermination of dressing at four— and thus dispensing with the services of her attendant. Among all privileged spies, a lady's maid has the highest privileges. It is she who bathes Lady Theresa's eyes with eau de cologne after her ladyship's quarrel with the colonel. It is she who administers sal volatile to Miss Fanny, when Count Beaudesert of the Blues has jilted her. She has a hundred methods for the finding out of her mistress's secrets. She knows by the manner in which her victim jerks her head from under the hairbrush, or chafes at the gentlest administration of the comb, what hidden torches are racking her breast, what secret perplexities are bewildering her brain. That well-bred attendant knows how to interpret the most obscure diagnosis of all mental diseases that can afflict her mistress. She knows when the ivory complexion is bought and paid for, when the pearly teeth are foreign substances fashioned by the dentist, when the glossy plaits are the relics of the dead, rather than the property of the living and she knows other and more sacred secrets than these. She knows when the sweet smile is more false than Madame Levinson's enamel, and far less enduring, when the words that issue from between gates of borrowed pearl are more disguised and painted than the lips which help to shape them, when the lovely fairy of the ballroom re-enters the dressing-room after the night's long revelry, and throws aside her voluminous burnous and her faded bouquet, and drops her mask, and like another Cinderella loses the glass slipper, by whose glitter she has been distinguished, and falls back into her rags and dirt, the lady's maid is by to see the transformation. The valet who took wages from the prophet of Corazan must have seen his master sometimes unveiled, 
and must have laughed in his sleeve at the folly of the monster's worshippers. Lady Audley had made no confidant of her new maid, and on this day of all others she wished to be alone. She did lie down. She cast herself wearily upon the luxurious sofa in the dressing-room, and buried her face in the down pillows and tried to sleep. Sleep! She had almost forgotten what it was, that tender restorer of tired nature. It seemed so long now since she had slept. It was only about eight-and-forty hours, perhaps, but it appeared an intolerable time. Her fatigue of the night before, and her unnatural excitement had worn her out at last. She did fall asleep. She fell into a heavy slumber that was almost like stupor. She had taken a few drops out of the opium bottle in a glass of water before lying down. The clock over the mantelpiece chimed the quarter before four she woke suddenly and started up, with the cold perspiration breaking out in icy drops upon her forehead. She had dreamt that every member of the household was clamouring at the door, eager to tell her of a dreadful fire that had happened in the night. There was no sound but the flapping of the ivy-leaves against the glass, the occasional falling of a cinder, and the steady ticking of the clock. "'Perhaps I shall always be dreaming these sorts of dreams,' my lady thought, "'until the terror of them kills me.' The rain had ceased, and the cold spring sunshine was glittering upon the windows. Lady Audley dressed herself rapidly but carefully. I do not say that even in her supremest hour of misery she still retained her pride in her beauty. It was not so. She looked upon that beauty as a weapon, and she felt that she had now double need to be well armed. She dressed herself in her most gorgeous silk, a voluminous robe of silvery, shimmering blue, that made her look as if she had been arrayed in moonbeams. She shook out her hair into feathery showers of glittering gold, and with a cloak of white cashmere about her shoulders, went downstairs into the vestibule. She opened the door of the library and looked in. Sir Michael Audley was asleep in his easy-chair. As my lady softly closed this door, Alicia descended the stairs from her own room. The turret-door was open, and the sun was shining upon the wet grass-plat in the quadrangle. The firm gravel-walks were already very nearly dry, for the rain had ceased for upward of two hours. "'Will you take a walk with me in the quadrangle?' Lady Audley asked as her stepdaughter approached. The armed neutrality between the two women admitted of any chance civility such as this. "'Yes, if you please, my lady,' Alicia answered rather listlessly. "'I have been yawning over a stupid novel all the morning, and shall be very glad of a little fresh air.' Heaven help the novelist whose fiction Miss Audley had been perusing, if he had no better critics than that young lady. She had read page after page without knowing what she had been reading— and had flung aside the volume half a dozen times to go to the window, and watch for that visitor whom she had so confidently expected. Lady Audley led the way through the low doorway and on to the smooth gravel drive, by which carriages approached the house. She was still very pale, but the brightness of her dress and of her feathery golden ringlets distracted an observer's eyes from her pallid face. All mental distress is, with some show of reason, associated in our minds with loose, disordered garments and disabete hair, and an appearance in every way the reverse of my lady's. Why had she come out into the chill sunshine of that March afternoon, to wander up and down that monotonous pathway with the stepdaughter she hated? She came because she was under the dominion of a horrible restlessness, which would not suffer her to remain within the house waiting for certain tidings which she knew must too surely come. At first she had wished to ward them off. At first she had wished that strange convulsions of nature might arise to hinder their coming, that abnormal winter lightnings must wither and destroy the messenger who carried them, that the ground might tremble and yawn beneath his hastening feet, and that impassable gulfs might separate the spot from which the tidings were to come, and the place to which they were to be carried. 
She wished that the earth might stand still, and the paralyzed elements cease from their natural functions, that the progress of time might stop, that the day of judgment might come, and that she might thus be brought before an unearthly tribunal, and so escape the intervening shame and misery of any earthly judgment. In the wild chaos of her brain, every one of these thoughts had held its place, and in her short slumber on the sofa in her dressing-room, she had dreamed all these things, and a hundred other things, all bearing upon the same subject. She had dreamed that a brook, a tiny streamlet when she first saw it, flowed across the road between Mount Stanning and Audley, and gradually swelled into a river, and from a river became an ocean, till the village on the hill receded far away out of sight, and only a great waste of waters rolled where it had once been. She dreamt that she saw the messenger, now one person, now another, but never any probable person, hindered by a hundred hindrances, now startling and terrible, now ridiculous and trivial, but never either natural or probable, and going down into the quiet house with the memory of these dreams strong upon her, she had been bewildered by the stillness which had betokened that the tidings had not yet come. And now her mind underwent a complete change. If she no longer wished to delay the dreaded intelligence, she wished the agony, whatever it was to be, over and done with, the pain suffered and the release attained. It seemed to her as if the intolerable day would never come to an end, as if her mad wishes had been granted, and the progress of time had actually stopped. "'What a long day it has been!' exclaimed Alicia, as if taking up the burden of my lady's thoughts. "'Nothing but drizzle and mist and wind. And now that it's too late for anybody to go out, it must needs be fine,' the young lady added, with an evident sense of injury. Lady Audley did not answer. She was looking at the stupid one-handed clock, and waiting for the news which must come sooner or later, which could not surely fail to come very speedily. "'They have been afraid to come and tell him,' she thought. They have been afraid to break the news to Sir Michael. Who will come to tell it at last, I wonder? The rector of Mount Stanning, perhaps, or the doctor, some important person at least. If she could have gone out into the leafless avenues, or on to the high road beyond them, if she could have gone so far as that hill upon which she had so lately parted with Phoebe, she would gladly have done so. She would rather have suffered anything than that slow suspense, that corroding anxiety, that metaphysical dry-rot, in which heart and mind seemed to decay under an insufferable torture. She tried to talk, and by a painful effort contrived now and then to utter some commonplace remark. Under any ordinary circumstances her companion would have noticed her embarrassment, but Miss Audley, happening to be very much absorbed by her own vexations, was quite as well inclined to be silent as my lady herself. The monotonous walk up and down the gravelled pathway suited Alicia's humour. I think that she even took a malicious pleasure in the idea that she was very likely catching cold, and that her cousin Robert was answerable for her danger. If she could have brought upon herself inflammation of the lungs, or ruptured blood-vessels, by that exposure to the chill March atmosphere, I think she would have felt a gloomy satisfaction in her sufferings. "'Perhaps Robert might care for me if I had inflammation of the lungs,' she thought. "'He couldn't insult me by calling me a bouncer then. Bouncers don't have inflammation of the lungs.' I believe she drew a picture of herself in the last stage of consumption, propped up by pillows in a great easy-chair, looking out of a window in the afternoon sunshine, with medicine-bottles, a bunch of grapes, and a Bible upon a table by her side, and with Robert, all contrition and tenderness, summoned to receive her farewell blessing. She preached a whole chapter to him in that parting benediction, talking a great deal longer than was in keeping with her prostrate state, and very much enjoying her dismal castle in the air. Employed in this sentimental manner, Miss Audley took very little notice of her stepmother, 
and the one hand of the blundering clock had slipped to six by the time Robert had been blessed and dismissed. "'Good gracious me!' she cried suddenly. Six o'clock, and I'm not dressed!' The half-hour bell rung in a cupola upon the roof while Alicia was speaking. "'I must go in, my lady,' she said. "'Won't you come?' "'Presently,' answered Lady Audley. "'I'm dressed, you see.' Alicia ran off, but Sir Michael's wife still lingered in the quadrangle, still waited for those tidings which were so long coming. It was nearly dark. The blue mists of evening had slowly risen from the ground. The flat meadows were filled with a grey vapour, and a stranger might have fancied Audley Court a castle on the margin of a sea. Under the archway the shadows of fast-coming night lurked darkly, like traitors waiting for an opportunity to glide stealthily into the quadrangle. Through the archway a patch of cold blue sky glimmered faintly, streaked by one line of lurid crimson, and lighted by the dim glitter of one wintry-looking star. Not a creature was stirring in the quadrangle but the restless woman who paced up and down the straight pathways, listening for a footstep whose coming was to strike terror to her soul. She heard it at last—a footstep in the avenue upon the other side of the archway. But was it the footstep? Her sense of hearing, made unnaturally acute by excitement, told her that it was a man's footstep, told even more that it was the tread of a gentleman, no slouching, lumbering pedestrian in hobnailed boots, but a gentleman who walked firmly and well. Every sound fell like a lump of ice upon my lady's heart. She could not wait. She could not contain herself. She lost all self-control, all power of endurance, all capability of self-restraint, and she rushed toward the archway. She paused beneath its shadow, for the stranger was close upon her. She saw him, oh God, she saw him in that dim evening light. Her brain reeled, her heart stopped beating. She uttered no cry of surprise, no exclamation of terror, but staggered backward and clung for support to the ivied buttress of the archway. With her slender figure crouched into the angle formed by the buttress and the wall which it supported, she stood staring at the newcomer. As he approached her more closely, her knees sunk under her, and she dropped to the ground, not fainting, or in any manner unconscious, but sinking into a crouching attitude, and still crushed into the angle of the wall, as if she would have made a tomb for herself in the shadow of that sheltering brickwork. "'My lady!' The speaker was Robert Audley he whose bedroom door she had double-locked seventeen hours before at the Castle Inn. "'What is the matter with you?' he said, in a strange, constrained manner. "'Get up, and let me take you indoors.' He assisted her to rise, and she obeyed him very submissively. He took her arm in his strong hand, and led her across the quadrangle and into the lamp-lit hall. She shivered more violently than he had ever seen any woman shiver before, but she made no attempt at resistance to his will." End of chapter 33 Chapter 34 of Lady Audley's Secret This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett Lady Audley's Secret by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty four. My lady tells the truth. Is there any room in which I can talk to you alone? Robert Audley asked, as he looked dubiously round the hall. My lady only bowed her head in answer. She pushed open the door of the library which had been left ajar. Sir Michael had gone to his dressing room to prepare for dinner after a day of lazy enjoyment, 
perfectly legitimate for an invalid. The apartment was quite empty, only lighted by the blaze of the fire, as it had been upon the previous evening. Lady Audley entered the room, followed by Robert, who closed the door behind him. The wretched, shivering woman went to the fireplace, and knelt down before the blaze, as if any natural warmth could have power to check that unnatural chill. The young man followed her, and stood beside her upon the hearth, with his arm resting upon the chimney-piece. "'Lady Audley,' he said, in a voice whose icy sternness held out no hope of any tenderness or compassion, "'I spoke to you last night very plainly, but you refused to listen to me. To-night I must speak to you still more plainly, and you must no longer refuse to listen to me.' My lady, crouching before the fire with her face hidden in her hands, uttered a low, sobbing sound which was almost a moan, but made no other answer. "'There was a fire last night at Mount Stanning, Lady Audley,' the pitiless voice proceeded. "'The Castle Inn, the house in which I slept, was burned to the ground. Do you know how I escaped perishing in that destruction?' "'No.' "'I escaped by a most providential circumstance, which seems a very simple one. I did not sleep in the room which had been prepared for me. The place seemed wretchedly damp and chilly. The chimney smoked abominably— when an attempt was made at lighting a fire, and I persuaded the servant to make me up a bed on the sofa in the small ground-floor sitting-room, which I had occupied during the evening. He paused for a moment, watching the crouching figure. The only change in my lady's attitude was that her head had fallen a little lower. "'Shall I tell you by whose agency the destruction of the Castle Inn was brought about, my lady?' There was no answer. "'Shall I tell you?' Still the same obstinate silence. "'My Lady Audley,' cried Robert suddenly, "'you are the incendiary. It was you whose murderous hand kindled those flames. It was you who thought by that thrice horrible deed to rid yourself of me, your enemy and denouncer. What was it to you that other lives might be sacrificed? If by a second massacre of St. Bartholomew you could have ridded yourself of me, you would have sacrificed an army of victims.' The day is past for tenderness and mercy. For you I can no longer know pity or compunction. So far as by sparing your shame I can spare others who must suffer by your shame, I will be merciful, but no farther. If there were any secret tribunal before which you might be made to answer for your crimes, I would have little scruple in being your accuser. But I would spare that generous and high-born gentleman upon whose noble name your infamy would be reflected." His voice softened as he made this allusion, and for a moment he broke down, but he recovered himself by an effort and continued. "'No life was lost in the fire of last night. I slept lightly, my lady, for my mind was troubled, as it has been for a long time, by the misery which I knew was lowering upon this house. It was I who discovered the breaking out of the fire in time to give the alarm, and to save the servant-girl and the poor drunken wretch, who was very much burnt in spite of efforts, and who now lies in a precarious state at his mother's cottage. It was from him and from his wife that I learned who had visited the castle inn in the dead of night. The woman was almost distracted when she saw me, and from her I discovered the particulars of last night. Heaven knows what other secrets of yours she may hold, my lady, or how easily they might be extorted from her if I wanted her aid, which I do not. My path lies very straight before me. I have sworn to bring the murderer of George Tallboys to justice— and I will keep my oath. 
I say that it was by your agency my friend met with his death. If I have wondered sometimes, as it was only natural I should, whether I was not the victim of some horrible hallucination, whether such an alternative was not more probable than that a young and lovely woman should be capable of so foul and treacherous a murder, all wonder is past. After last night's deed of horror, there is no crime you could commit, however vast and unnatural, which could make me wonder. Henceforth you must seem to me no longer a woman, a guilty woman with a heart which in its worst wickedness has yet some latent power to suffer and feel. I look upon you henceforth as the demonic incarnation of some evil principle. But you shall no longer pollute this place by your presence, unless you will confess what you are, and who you are, in the presence of the man you have deceived so long, and accept from him and from me such mercy as we may be inclined to extend to you, I will gather together the witnesses who shall swear to your identity, and at peril of any shame to myself and those I love, I will bring upon you the just and awful punishment of your crime." The woman rose suddenly, and stood before him erect and resolute, with her hair dashed away from her face, and her eyes glittering. "'Bring, Sir Michael,' she cried, "'bring him here, and I will confess anything—everything. What do I care? God knows I have struggled hard enough against you, and fought the battle patiently enough. But you have conquered, Mr. Robert Audley. It is a great triumph, is it not? A wonderful victory. You have used your cool, calculating, frigid, luminous intellect to a noble purpose. You have conquered a mad woman.' "'A madwoman?' cried Mr. Audley. "'Yes, a madwoman. When you say that I killed George Talboys, you say the truth. When you say that I murdered him treacherously and foully, you lie. I killed him because I am mad, because my intellect is a little way upon the wrong side of that narrow boundary-line between sanity and insanity, because when George Talboys goaded me, as you have goaded me, and reproached me, and threatened me, my mind, never properly balanced, utterly lost its balance, and I was mad. Bring Sir Michael, and bring him quickly. If he is to be told one thing, let him be told everything. Let him hear the secret of my life." Robert Audley left the room to look for his uncle. He went in search of that honoured kinsman with God knows how heavy a weight of anguish at his heart, for he knew he was about to shatter the daydream of his uncle's life and he knew that our dreams are none the less terrible to lose, because they have never been the realities for which we have mistaken them. But even in the midst of his sorrow for Sir Michael, he could not help wondering at my lady's last words, the secret of my life. He remembered those lines in the letter written by Helen Talboys upon the eve of her flight from Wildernsea, which had so puzzled him. He remembered those appealing sentences, "'You should forgive me, for you know why I have been so. You know the secret of my life.' He met Sir Michael in the hall. He made no attempt to prepare the way for the terrible revelation which the baronet was to hear. He only drew him into the fire-lit library, and there, for the first time, addressed him quietly thus. "'Lady Audley has a confession to make to you, sir—a confession which I know will be a most cruel surprise, a most bitter grief. But it is necessary for your present honour, and for your future peace, that you should hear it. She has deceived you, I regret to say, most basely but it is only right that you should hear from her own lips any excuses which she may have to offer for her wickedness. May God soften this blow for you," sobbed the young man, suddenly breaking down. I cannot. 
Sir Michael lifted his hand as if he would command his nephew to be silent, but that imperious hand dropped feeble and impotent at his side. He stood in the centre of the fire-lit room, rigid and immobile. "'Lucy!' he cried, in a voice whose anguish struck like a blow upon the jarred nerves of those who heard it, as the cry of a wounded animal pains the listener. "'Lucy, tell me that this man is a madman. Tell me so, my love, or I shall kill him!' There was a sudden fury in his voice as he turned upon Robert, as if he could have indeed felled his wife's accuser to the earth with the strength of his uplifted arm. But my lady fell upon her knees at his feet, interposing herself between the baronet and his nephew, who stood leaning on the back of an easy-chair, with his face hidden by his hand. "'He has told you the truth,' said my lady, "'and he is not mad. I have sent him for you, that I may confess everything to you. I should be sorry for you if I could, for you have been very, very good to me, much better to me than I ever deserved. But I can't. I can't. I can feel nothing but my own misery.' I told you long ago that I was selfish. I am selfish still, more selfish than ever in my misery. Happy, prosperous people may feel for others. I laugh at other people's sufferings. They seem so small compared to my own. When first my lady had fallen on her knees, Sir Michael had attempted to raise her, and had remonstrated with her. But as she spoke he dropped into a chair close to the spot upon which she knelt, and with his hands clasped together, and with his head bent to catch every syllable of those horrible words, he listened as if his whole being had been resolved into that one sense of hearing. "'I must tell you the story of my life, in order to tell you why I have become the miserable wretch who has no better hope than to be allowed to run away and hide in some desolate corner of the earth. I must tell you the story of my life,' repeated my lady. "'But you need not fear that I shall dwell long upon it. It has not been so pleasant to me that I should wish to remember it.' When I was a very little child, I remember asking a question which it was natural enough that I should ask, God help me. I asked where my mother was. I had a faint remembrance of a face, like what my own is now, looking at me when I was very little better than a baby. But I had missed the face suddenly, and had never seen it since. They told me that mother was away. I was not happy, for the woman who had charge of me was a disagreeable woman, and the place in which we lived was a lonely place a village upon the Hampshire coast, about seven miles from Portsmouth. My father, who was in the navy, only came now and then to see me, and I was left almost entirely to the charge of this woman, who was irregularly paid, and who vented her rage upon me when my father was behind hand in remitting her money. So you see that at a very early age I found out what it was to be poor. Perhaps it was more from being discontented with my dreary life than from any wonderful impulse of affection that I asked very often the same question about my mother. I always received the same answer. She was away. When I asked where, I was told that that was a secret. When I grew old enough to understand the meaning of the word death, I asked if my mother was dead, and I was told, No, she was not dead. She was ill, and she was away. I asked how long she had been ill, and I was told that she had been so some years, ever since I was a baby. At last the secret came out. I worried my foster-mother with the old question one day, when the remittances had fallen very much in arrear, and her temper had been unusually tried. She flew into a passion, and told me that my mother was a madwoman, and that she was in a madhouse forty miles away. She had scarcely said this when she repented, and told me that it was not the truth, and that I was not to believe it, or to say that she had told me such a thing. 
I discovered afterward that my father had made her promise, most solemnly, never to tell me the secret of my mother's fate. I brooded horribly upon the thought of my mother's madness. It haunted me by day and night. I was always picturing to myself this madwoman, pacing up and down some prison cell, in a hideous garment that bound her tortured limbs. I had exaggerated ideas of the horror of her situation. I had no knowledge of the different degrees of madness, and the image that haunted me was that of a distraught and violent creature, who would fall upon me and kill me if I came within her reach. This idea grew upon me, until I used to awake in the dead of night, screaming aloud in an agony of terror, from a dream in which I had felt my mother's icy grasp upon my throat, and heard her ravings in my ear. When I was ten years old, my father came to pay up the arrears due to my protectress, and to take me to school. He had left me in Hampshire longer than he had intended, from his inability to pay this money. So there again I felt the bitterness of poverty, and ran the risk of growing up an ignorant creature among coarse, rustic children, because my father was poor. My lady paused for a moment, but only to take breath, for she had spoken rapidly, as if eager to tell this hated story, and to have done with it. She was still on her knees, but Sir Michael made no effort to raise her. He sat silent and immovable. What was this story that he was listening to? Whose was it, and to what was it to lead? It could not be his wife's. He had heard her simple account of her youth, and had believed it as he had believed in the gospel. She had told him a very brief story of an early orphanage, and a long, quiet, colourless youth spent in the conventional seclusion of an English boarding-school. My father came at last, and I told him what I had discovered. He was very much affected when I spoke of my mother. He was not what the world generally calls a good man, but I learned afterward that he had loved his wife very dearly, and that he would have willingly sacrificed his life to her, and constituted himself her guardian, had he not been compelled to earn the daily bread of the madwoman and her child by the exercise of his profession. So here again I beheld what a bitter thing it is to be poor. My mother, who might have been tended by a devoted husband, was given over to the care of hired nurses. Before my father sent me to school at Torquay, he took me to see my mother. This visit served at least to dispel the idea which had so often terrified me. I saw no raving, straight-waistcoated maniac, guarded by zealous jailers, but a golden-haired, blue-eyed, girlish creature, who seemed as frivolous as a butterfly, and who skipped toward us with her yellow curls decorated with natural flowers, and saluted us with radiant smiles and gay, ceaseless chatter. But she didn't know us. She would have spoken in the same manner to any stranger who had entered the gates of the garden about her prison-house. Her madness was an hereditary disease transmitted to her from her mother, who had died mad. She, my mother, had been, or had appeared sane up to the hour of my birth, but from that hour her intellect had decayed, and she had become what I saw her. I went away with the knowledge of this, and with the knowledge that the only inheritance I had to expect from my mother was—insanity. I went away with this knowledge in my mind, and with something more—a secret to keep. I was a child of ten years only, but I felt all the weight of that burden. I was to keep the secret of my mother's madness, for it was a secret that might affect me injuriously in after-life. I was to remember this. I did remember this, and it was perhaps this that made me selfish and heartless, for I suppose I am heartless. As I grew older I was told that I was pretty, beautiful lovely, bewitching. I heard all these things at first indifferently, but by and by I listened to them greedily, 
and began to think that in spite of the secret of my life, I might be more successful in the world's great lottery than my companions. I had learnt that which in some indefinite manner or other every schoolgirl learns sooner or later. I learned that my ultimate fate in life depended upon my marriage, and I concluded that if I was indeed prettier than my schoolfellows, I ought to marry better than any one of them. I left school before I was seventeen years of age, with this thought in my mind, and I went to live at the other extremity of England with my father, who had retired upon his half-pay, and had established himself at Wildernsea, with the idea that the place was cheap and select. The place was indeed select. I had not been there a month before I discovered that even the prettiest girl might wait a long time for a rich husband. I wished to hurry over this part of my life. I dare say I was very despicable. You and your nephew, Sir Michael, have been rich all your lives, and can very well afford to despise me. But I knew how far poverty can affect a life, and I looked forward with a sickening dread to a life so affected. At last the rich suitor, the wandering prince, came. She paused for a moment, and shuddered convulsively. It was impossible to see any of the changes in her countenance, for her face was obstinately bent toward the floor. Throughout her long confession she never lifted it. Throughout her long confession her voice was never broken by a tear. What she had to tell she told in a cold, hard tone, very much the tone in which some criminal, dogged and sullen to the last, might have confessed to a jail chaplain. "'The wandering prince came,' she repeated. He was called George Tallboys. For the first time since his wife's confession had begun, Sir Michael Audley started. He began to understand it all now. A crowd of unheeded words and forgotten circumstances, that had seemed too insignificant for remark or recollection, flashed back upon him as vividly as if they had been the leading incidents of his past life. Mr. George Tallboys was a cornet in a dragoon regiment. He was the only son of a rich country gentleman. He fell in love with me, and married me three months after my seventeenth birthday. I think I loved him as much as it was in my power to love anybody. Not more than I have loved you, Sir Michael. Not so much. For when you married me, you elevated me to a position that he could never have given me. The dream was broken. Sir Michael oddly remembered that summer's evening, nearly two years ago, when he had first declared his love for Mr. Dawson's governess. He remembered the sick, half-shuddering sensation of regret and disappointment that had come over him then, and he felt as if it had in some manner dimly foreshadowed the agony of to-night. But I do not believe that even in his misery he felt that entire and unmitigated surprise, that utter revulsion of feeling that is felt when a good woman wanders away from herself, and becomes the lost creature whom her husband is bound in honour to abjure. I do not believe that Sir Michael Audley had ever really believed in his wife. He had loved her, and admired her. He had been bewitched by her beauty, and bewildered by her charms. But that sense of something wanting, that vague feeling of loss and disappointment, which had come upon him on the summer's night of his betrothal, had been with him more or less distinctly ever since. I cannot believe that an honest man, however pure and single may be his mind, however simply trustful his nature, is ever really deceived by falsehood. There is, beneath the voluntary confidence, an involuntary distrust, not to be conquered by any effort of the will. We were married, my lady continued, and I loved him very well, quite well enough to be happy with him as long as his money lasted, and while we were on the continent, travelling in the best style, and always staying at the best hotels. But when we came back to Wildernsea and lived with Papa, and all the money was gone, and George grew gloomy and wretched, and was always thinking of his troubles, and appeared to neglect me, 
I was very unhappy, and it seemed as if this fine marriage had only given me a twelve-month's gaiety and extravagance after all. I begged George to appeal to his father, but he refused. I persuaded him to try and get employment, and he failed. My baby was born, and the crisis which had been fatal to my mother arose for me. I escaped, but I was more irritable perhaps after my recovery, less inclined to fight the hard battle of the world, more disposed to complain of poverty and neglect. I did complain one day, loudly and bitterly. I upbraided George Tallboys for his cruelty in having allied a helpless girl to poverty and misery, and he flew into a passion with me and ran out of the house. When I awoke the next morning, I found a letter lying on the table by my bed, telling me that he was going to the Antipodes to seek his fortune, and that he would never see me again until he was a rich man. I looked upon this as a desertion, and I resented it bitterly, resented it by hating the man who had left me with no protector but a weak, tipsy father, and with a child to support. I had to work hard for my living, and in every hour of labour, and what labour is more wearisome than the dull slavery of a governess? I recognised a separate wrong done me by George Tallboys. His father was rich, his sister was living in luxury and respectability, and I, his wife, and the mother of his son, was a slave allied to beggary and obscurity. People pitied me, and I hated them for their pity. I did not love the child for he had been left a burden upon my hands. The hereditary taint that was in my blood had never until this time showed itself by any one sign or token. But at this time I became subject to fits of violence and despair. At this time I think my mind first lost its balance, and for the first time I crossed that invisible line which separates reason from madness. I have seen my father's eyes fixed upon me in horror and alarm. I have known him soothe me as only mad people and children are soothed and I have chafed against his petty devices. I have resented even his indulgence. At last these fits of desperation resolved themselves into a desperate purpose. I determined to run away from this wretched home which my slavery supported. I determined to desert this father, who had more fear of me than love for me. I determined to go to London, and lose myself in that great chaos of humanity. I had seen an advertisement in the Times while I was at Wildernsea, and I presented myself to Mrs. Vincent, the advertiser, under a feigned name. She accepted me, waiving all questions as to my antecedents. You know the rest. I came here, and you made me an offer, the acceptance of which would lift me at once into the sphere to which my ambition had pointed ever since I was a schoolgirl, and heard for the first time that I was pretty. Three years had passed, and I had received no token of my husband's existence. For, I argued, that if he had returned to England, he would have succeeded in finding me under any name and in any place. I knew the energy of his character well enough to know this. I said, I have a right to think that he is dead, or that he wishes me to believe him dead, and his shadow shall not stand between me and prosperity. I said this, and I became your wife, Sir Michael, with every resolution to be as good a wife as it was in my nature to be. The common temptations that assail and shipwreck some women had no terror for me. I would have been your true and pure wife to the end of time, though I had been surrounded by a legion of tempters. The mad folly that the world calls love had never had any part in my madness, and here at least extremes met, and the vice of heartlessness became the virtue of constancy. I was very happy in the first triumph and grandeur of my new position, very grateful to the hand that had lifted me to it. In the sunshine of mine own happiness I felt, for the first time in my life, for the miseries of others. I had been poor myself, and I was now rich, and could afford to pity and relieve the poverty of my neighbours. 
I took pleasure in acts of kindness and benevolence. I found out my father's address, and sent him large sums of money anonymously, for I did not wish him to discover what had become of me. I availed myself to the full of the privilege your generosity afforded me. I dispensed happiness on every side. I saw myself loved as well as admired, and I think I might have been a good woman for the rest of my life, if fate would have allowed me to be so. I believe that at this time my mind regained its just balance. I had watched myself very closely since leaving Wildernsea. I had held a check upon myself. I had often wondered, while sitting in the surgeon's quiet family circle, whether any suspicion of that invisible, hereditary taint had ever occurred to Mr. Dawson. Fate would not suffer me to be good. My destiny compelled me to be a wretch. Within a month of my marriage, I read in one of the Essex papers of the return of a certain Mr. Tallboys, a fortunate gold-seeker from Australia. The ship had sailed at the time I read the paragraph. What was to be done? I said just now that I knew the energy of George's character. I knew that the man who had gone to the Antipodes and won a fortune for his wife would leave no stone unturned in his efforts to find her. It was hopeless to think of hiding myself from him. Unless he could be induced to believe that I was dead, he would never cease in his search for me. My brain was dazed as I thought of my peril. Again the balance trembled. Again the invisible boundary was passed. Again I was mad. I went down to Southampton and found my father, who was living there with my child. You remember how Mrs. Vincent's name was used as an excuse for this hurried journey, and how it was contrived I should go with no other escort than Phoebe Marks, whom I left at the hotel while I went to my father's house. I confided to my father the whole secret of my peril. He was not very much shocked at what I had done, for poverty had perhaps blunted his sense of honour and principle. He was not very much shocked, but he was frightened, and he promised to do all in his power to assist me in my horrible emergency. He had received a letter addressed to me at Wildernsea by George, and forwarded from there to my father. This letter had been written within a few days of the sailing of the Argus, and it announced the probable date of the ship's arrival at Liverpool. This letter gave us, therefore, data upon which to act. We decided at once upon the first step. This was that on the date of the probable arrival of the Argus, or a few days later, an advertisement of my death should be inserted in the Times. But almost immediately after deciding upon this, we saw that there were fearful difficulties in the carrying out of such a simple plan. The date of the death, and the place in which I died, must be announced, as well as the death itself. George would immediately hurry to that place, however distant it might be, however comparatively inaccessible, and the shallow falsehood would be discovered. I knew enough of his sanguine temperament, his courage and determination, his readiness to hope against hope, to know that unless he saw the grave in which I was buried, and the register of my death, he would never believe that I was lost to him. My father was utterly dumbfounded and helpless. He could only shed childish tears of despair and terror. He was of no use to me in this crisis. I was hopeless of any issue out of my difficulties. I began to think that I must trust to the chapter of accidents, and hope that among other obscure corners of the earth, Audley Court might be undreamt of by my husband. I sat with my father, drinking tea with him in his miserable hovel, and playing with the child— who was pleased with my dress and jewels, but quite unconscious that I was anything but a stranger to him. I had the boy in my arms, when a woman who attended him came to fetch him that she might make him more fit to be seen by the lady, as she said. I was anxious to know how the boy was treated, and I detained this woman in conversation with me while my father dozed over the tea-table. She was a pale-faced, sandy-haired woman of about five-and-forty, and she seemed very glad to get the chance of talking to me as long as I pleased to allow her. 
She soon left off talking of the boy, however, to tell me of her own troubles. She was in very great trouble, she told me. Her eldest daughter had been obliged to leave her situation from ill health. In fact, the doctor said the girl was in a decline, and it was a hard thing for a poor widow who had seen better days to have a sick daughter to support, as well as a family of young children. I let the woman run on for a long time in this manner, telling me the girl's ailments, and the girl's age, and the girl's doctor's stuff, and piety, and sufferings, and a great deal more. But I neither listened to her nor heeded her. I heard her, but only in a faraway manner, as I heard the traffic in the street, or the ripple of the stream at the bottom of it. What were this woman's troubles to me? I had miseries of my own, and worse miseries than her coarse nature could ever have to endure. These sort of people always had sick husbands, or sick children, and expected to be helped in their illness by the rich. It was nothing out of the common. I was thinking this, and I was just going to dismiss the woman with a sovereign for her sick daughter, when an idea flashed upon me with such painful suddenness, that it sent the blood surging up to my brain, and set my heart beating, as it only beats when I am mad. I asked the woman her name. She was a Mrs. Plowson, and she kept a small general shop, she said, and only ran in now and then to look after Georgie, and to see that the little maid of all work took care of him. Her daughter's name was Matilda. I asked her several questions about this girl Matilda, and I ascertained that she was four-and-twenty, that she had always been a consumptive, and that she was now, as the doctor said, going off in a rapid decline. He had declared that she could not last much more than a fortnight. It was in three weeks that the ship that carried George Tallboys was expected to anchor in the Mercy. I need not dwell upon this business. I visited the sick girl. She was fair and slender. Her description, carelessly given, might tally nearly enough with my own, though she bore no shadow of resemblance to me, except in these two particulars. I was received by the girl as a rich lady who wished to do her service. I bought the mother, who was poor and greedy, and who for a gift of money—more money than she had ever before received— consented to submit to anything I wished. Upon the second day after my introduction to this Mrs. Plowson, my father went over to Ventnor, and hired lodgings for his invalid daughter and her little boy. Early the next morning he carried over the dying girl and Georgie, who had been bribed to call her Mama. She entered the house as Mrs. Tallboys. She was attended by a Ventnor medical man as Mrs. Tallboys. She died, and her death and burial were registered in that name. The advertisement was inserted in the Times, and upon the second day after its insertion, George Tallboys visited Ventnor, and ordered the tombstone which at this hour records the death of his wife, Helen Tallboys. Sir Michael Audley rose slowly, and with a stiff, constrained action, as if every physical sense had been benumbed by that one sense of misery. "'I cannot hear any more,' he said in a hoarse whisper. "'If there is anything more to be told, I cannot hear it. "'Robert!' It is you who have brought about this discovery, as I understand. I want to know nothing more. Will you take upon yourself the duty of providing for the safety and comfort of this lady whom I have thought my wife? I need not ask you to remember in all that you do, that I have loved her very dearly and truly. I cannot say farewell to her. I will not say it until I can think of her without bitterness, until I can pity her, as I now pray that God may pity her this night." Sir Michael walked slowly from the room. He did not trust himself to look at that crouching figure. He did not wish to see the creature whom he had cherished. He went straight to his dressing-room, rung for his valet, and ordered him to pack a portmanteau, and make all necessary arrangements for accompanying his master by the last up-train. 
End of chapter 34、Chapter 35 Chapter Thirty-Five, The Hush That Succeeds the Tempest. Robert Audley followed his uncle into the vestibule after Sir Michael had spoken those few quiet words, which sounded the death knell of his hope and love. Heaven knows how much the young man had feared the coming of this day. It had come, and though there had been no great outburst of despair, no whirlwind of stormy grief, no loud tempest of anguish and tears, Robert took no comforting thought from the unnatural stillness. He knew enough to know that Sir Michael Audley went away with the barbed arrow which his nephew's hand had sent home to its aim, rankling in his tortured heart. He knew that this strange and icy calm was the first numbness of a heart stricken by grief, so unexpected as for a time to be rendered almost incomprehensible by a blank stupor of astonishment. He knew that when this dull quiet had passed away, when little by little and one by one each horrible feature of the sufferer's sorrow became first dimly apparent. And then terribly familiar to him, the storm would burst in fatal fury, and tempests of tears and cruel thunderclaps of agony would rend that generous heart. Robert had heard of cases in which men of his uncle's age had borne some great grief, as Sir Michael had borne this with a strange quiet, and had gone away from those who would have comforted them, and whose anxieties had been relieved by this patient stillness, to fall down upon the ground and die under the blow at which at first had only stunned him. He remembered cases in which paralysis and apoplexy had stricken men as strong as his uncle in the first hour of the horrible affliction, and he lingered in the lamp-lit vestibule, wondering whether it was not his duty to be with Sir Michael, to be near him in case of any emergency, and to accompany him wherever he went. Yet would it be wise to force himself upon that grey-headed sufferer in this cruel hour, in which he had been awakened from the one delusion of a blameless life, to discover that he had been the dupe of a false face? And the fool of a nature which was too coldly mercenary, too cruelly heartless, to be sensible of its own infamy. No, thought Robert Audley, I will not intrude upon the anguish of this wounded heart. There is humiliation mingled with this bitter grief. It is better he should fight the battle alone. I have done what I believe to have been my solemn duty. Yet I should scarcely wonder if I had rendered myself forever hateful to him. It is better he should fight the battle alone. I can do nothing to make the strife less terrible. Better that it should be fought alone. While the young man stood with his hand upon the library door, still half doubtful whether he should follow his uncle or re-enter the room in which he had left that more wretched creature whom it had been his business to unmask, Alicia Audley opened the dining-room door and revealed to him the old-fashioned oak-panelled apartment, the long table covered with a showy damask and bright with a cheerful glitter of glass and silver. Is Papa coming to dinner? Asked Miss Audley. I'm so hungry, and poor Tomlins has sent up three times to say the fish will be spoiled. It must be reduced to a species of isinglass soup by this time, I should think," added the young lady as she came out into the vestibule with the Times newspaper in her hand. She had been sitting by the fire reading the paper and waiting for her seniors to join her at the dinner table. Oh, it's you, Mr. Robert Audley," she remarked indifferently. "You dine with us, of course. Pray go and find Papa." It must be nearly eight o'clock, and we are supposed to dine at six. Mr. Audley answered his cousin rather sternly. 
Her frivolous manner jarred upon him, and he forgot in his irrational displeasure that Miss Audley had known nothing of the terrible drama which had been so long enacting under her very nose. "'Your papa has just endured a very great grief, Alicia,' the young man said gravely. The girl's arch, laughing face changed in a moment to a tenderly earnest look of sorrow and anxiety. Alicia Audley loved her father very dearly. "'A grief!' she exclaimed. "'Papa grieved! Oh, Robert, what has happened?' "'I can tell you nothing yet, Alicia,' Robert answered in a low voice. He took his cousin by the wrist, and drew her into the dining-room as he spoke. He closed the door carefully behind him before he continued. "'Alicia, can I trust you?' he asked earnestly. "'Trust me to do what?' "'To be a comfort and a friend to your poor father under a very heavy affliction.' "'Yes!' cried Alicia passionately. "'How can you ask me such a question?' Do you think there is anything I would not do to lighten any sorrow of my father's? Do you think there is anything I would not suffer if my suffering could lighten his?" The rushing tears rose to Miss Audley's bright gray eyes as she spoke. "'Oh, Robert! Robert! Could you think so badly of me as to think I would not try to be a comfort to my father in his grief?' she said reproachfully. "'No, no, my dear,' answered the young man quietly. "'I never doubted your affection. I only doubted your discretion. May I rely upon that?' "'You may, Robert,' said Alicia resolutely. "'Very well, then, my dear girl, I will trust you. Your father is going to leave the court, for a time at least. The grief which he has just endured—a sudden and unlooked-for sorrow, remember—has no doubt made this place hateful to him. He is going away, but he must not go alone, must he, Alicia?' "'Alone? No, no! But I suppose my lady—' "'Lady Audley will not go with him,' said Robert gravely. He is about to separate himself from her. For a time? No, forever. Separate himself from her forever? exclaimed Alicia. Then this grief— Is connected with Lady Audley. Lady Audley is the cause of your father's sorrow. Alicia's face, which had been pale before, flushed crimson. Sorrow, of which my lady was the cause, a sorrow which was to separate Sir Michael forever from his wife. There had been no quarrel between them. There had never been anything but harmony and sunshine between Lady Audley and her generous husband. This sorrow must surely then have arisen from some sudden discovery. It was, no doubt, a sorrow associated with disgrace. Robert Audley understood the meaning of that vivid blush. "'You will offer to accompany your father wherever he may choose to go, Alicia,' he said. "'You are his natural comforter at such a time as this.' But you will best befriend him in this hour of trial by avoiding all intrusion upon his grief. Your very ignorance of the particulars of that grief will be a security for your discretion. Say nothing to your father that you might not have said to him two years ago, before he married a second wife. Try and be to him what you were before the woman in yonder room came between you and your father's love." "'I will,' murmured Alicia. "'I will.' "'You will naturally avoid all mention of Lady Audley's name. If your father is often silent, be patient. If it sometimes seems to you that the shadow of this great sorrow will never pass away from his life, be patient still. And remember that there can be no better hope of a cure of his grief than the hope that his daughter's devotion may lead him to remember there is one woman upon this earth who will love him truly and purely until the last. Yes, yes, Robert, dear cousin, I will remember. Mr. Audley, for the first time since he had been a schoolboy, took his cousin in his arms and kissed her broad forehead. "'My dear Alicia,' he said, "'do this, and you will make me happy. I have been in some measure the means of bringing this sorrow upon your father. 
let me hope that it is not an enduring one. Try and restore my uncle to happiness, Alicia, and I will love you more dearly than brother ever loved a noble-hearted sister, and a brotherly affection may be worth having, perhaps, after all, my dear, though it is very different to poor Sir Harry's enthusiastic worship. Alicia's head was bent, and her face hidden from her cousin while he spoke, but she lifted her head when he had finished, and looked him full in the face with a smile that was only the brighter for her eyes being filled with tears. "'You are a good fellow, Bob,' she said, "'and I have been very foolish and wicked to feel angry with you because—the young lady stopped suddenly. "'Because what, my dear?' asked Mr. Audley. "'Because I'm silly, Cousin Robert,' Alicia said quickly. "'Never mind that, Bob. I'll do all you wish, and it shall not be my fault if my dearest father doesn't forget his troubles before long. I'd go to the end of the world with him, poor darling, if I thought there was any comfort to be found for him in the journey.' I'll go and get ready directly. Do you think Papa will go to-night? Yes, my dear. I don't think Sir Michael will rest another night under this roof yet a while. The mail goes at twenty minutes past nine, said Alicia. We must leave the house in an hour if we are to travel by it. I shall see you again before we go, Robert. Yes, dear. Miss Audley ran off to her room to summon her maid, and to make all necessary preparations for the sudden journey, of whose ultimate destination she was as yet quite ignorant. She went heart and soul into the carrying out of the duty which Robert had dictated to her. She assisted in the packing of her portmanteaus, and hopelessly bewildered her maid by stuffing silk dresses into her bonnet-boxes, and satin shoes into her dressing-case. She roamed about her rooms, gathering together drawing materials, music-books, needlework, hair-brushes, jewellery, and perfume-bottles, very much as she might have done had she been about to sail for some savage country, devoid of all civilized resources. She was thinking all the time of her father's unknown grief, and perhaps a little of the serious face and earnest voice which she had that night revealed her cousin Robert to her in a new character. Mr. Audley went upstairs after his cousin, and found his way to Sir Michael's dressing-room. He knocked at the door and listened, heaven knows how anxiously, for the expected answer. There was a moment's pause, during which the young man's heart beat loud and fast, and then the door was opened by the baronet himself. Robert saw that his uncle's valet was already hard at work preparing for his master's hurried journey. Sir Michael came out into the corridor. "'Have you anything more to say to me, Robert?' he asked quietly. "'I only came to ascertain if I could assist in any of your arrangements. You go to London by the mail?' "'Yes.' "'Have you any idea of where you will stay?' "'Yes. I shall stop at the Clarendon. I am known there. Is that all you have to say?' "'Yes, except that Alicia will accompany you.' "'Alicia?' "'She could not very well stay here, you know, just now. It would be best for her to leave the court until—' "'Yes, yes, I understand,' interrupted the baronet. "'But is there nowhere else that she could go? Must she be with me?' "'She could go nowhere else so immediately, and she would not be happy anywhere else.' "'Let her come, then,' said Sir Michael. "'Let her come.' He spoke in a strange, subdued voice, and with an apparent effort, as if it were painful to him to have to speak at all, as if all this ordinary business of life were a cruel torture to him, and jarred so much upon his grief, as to be almost worse to bear than that grief itself. "'Very well, my dear uncle, then it is all arranged. Alicia will be ready to start at nine o'clock.' "'Very good, very good,' muttered the baronet. "'Let her come if she pleases, poor child. Let her come.' He sighed heavily as he spoke in that half-pitying tone of his daughter. He was thinking how comparatively indifferent he had been toward that only child for the sake of the woman now shut in the firelit room below. "'I shall see you again before you go, sir,' 
said Robert. "'I will leave you till then.' "'Stay,' said Sir Michael suddenly. "'Have you told Alicia?' "'I have told her nothing, except that you are about to leave the court for some time.' "'You are very good, my boy. You are very good,' the baronet murmured in a broken voice. He stretched out his hand. His nephew took it in both his own, and pressed it to his lips. "'Oh, sir, how can I ever forgive myself?' he said. "'How can I ever cease to hate myself for having brought this grief upon you?' "'No. No, Robert, you did right. I wish that God had been so merciful to me as to take my miserable life before this night. But you did right.' Sir Michael re-entered his dressing-room, and Robert slowly returned to the vestibule. He paused upon the threshold of that chamber in which he had left Lucy, Lady Audley, otherwise Helen Talboys, the wife of his lost friend. She was lying upon the floor, upon the very spot in which she had crouched at her husband's feet telling her guilty story, whether she was in a swoon, or whether she lay there in the utter helplessness of her misery, Robert scarcely cared to know. He went out into the vestibule, and sent one of the servants to look for her maid, the smart, beribboned damsel who was loud in wonder and consternation at the sight of her mistress. "'Lady Audley is very ill,' he said. "'Take her to her room, and see that she does not leave it to-night. You will be good enough to remain near her, but do not either talk to her or suffer her to excite herself by talking.' My lady had not fainted. She allowed the girl to assist her, and rose from the ground upon which she had grovelled. Her golden hair fell in loose, dishevelled masses about her ivory throat and shoulders, and her face and lips were colourless, her eyes terrible in their unnatural light. "'Take me away,' she said, "'and let me sleep. Let me sleep, for my brain is on fire!' As she was leaving the room with her maid, she turned and looked at Robert. "'Is Sir Michael gone?' she asked. "'He will leave in half an hour.' "'There were no lives lost in the fire at Mount Stanning?' "'None.' "'I am glad of that.' The landlord of the house, Marks, was very terribly burned, and lies in a precarious state at his mother's cottage. But he may recover. I am glad of that. I am glad no life was lost. Good night, Mr. Audley. I shall ask to see you for a half an hour's conversation in the course of to-morrow, my lady. Whenever you please. Good night. Good night. She went away quietly leaning upon her maid's shoulder and leaving Robert with a sense of strange bewilderment that was very painful to him. He sat down by the broad hearth upon which the red embers were fading, and wondered at the change in that old house, which, until the day of his friend's disappearance, had been so pleasant a home for all who sheltered beneath its hospitable roof. He sat brooding over the desolate hearth, and trying to decide upon what must be done in this sudden crisis. He sat helpless and powerless to determine upon any course of action, lost in a dull reverie, from which he was aroused by the sound of carriage-wheels driving up to the little turret entrance. The clock in the vestibule struck nine as Robert opened the library door. Alicia had just descended the stairs with her maid, a rosy-faced country girl. "'Good-bye, Robert,' said Miss Audley, holding out her hand to her cousin. "'Good-bye, and God bless you. You may trust me to take care of Papa.' "'I am sure I may. God bless you, my dear.' For the second time that night Robert Audley pressed his lips to his cousin's candid forehead, and for the second time the embrace was of a brotherly, or paternal character, rather than the rapturous proceeding which it would have been had Sir Harry Towers been the privileged performer. It was five minutes past nine when Sir Michael came downstairs, followed by his valet, grave and grey-haired like himself. The baronet was pale, but calm and self-possessed. 
The hand which he gave to his nephew was as cold as ice, but it was with a steady voice that he bade the young man good-bye. "'I leave all in your hands, Robert,' he said, as he turned to leave the house in which he had lived so long. "'I may not have heard the end, but I have heard enough. Heaven knows I have no need to hear more. I leave all to you, but you will not be cruel. You will remember how much I have loved—' His voice broke huskily before he could finish the sentence. "'I will remember you in everything, sir,' the young man answered. "'I will do everything for the best.' A treacherous mist of tears blinded him, and shut out his uncle's face, and in another minute the carriage had driven away, and Robert Audley sat alone in the dark library, where only one red spark glowed among the pale grey ashes. He sat alone, trying to think what he ought to do, and with the awful responsibility of a wicked woman's fate upon his shoulders. "'Good heaven!' he thought. "'Surely this must be God's judgment upon the purposeless, vacillating life I led up to the seventh day of last September. Surely this awful responsibility has been forced upon me, in order that I may humble myself to an offended providence, and confess that a man cannot choose his own life. He cannot say, I will take existence lightly, and keep out of the way of the wretched, mistaken, energetic creatures who fight so heartily in the great battle. He cannot say, I will stop in the tents while the strife is fought, and laugh at the fools who are trampled down in the useless struggle. He cannot do this. He can only do, humbly and fearfully, that which the Maker who created him has appointed for him to do. If he has a battle to fight, let him fight it faithfully. But woe betide him if he skulks when his name is called in the mighty muster-roll. Woe betide him if he hides in the tents when the tocsin summons him to the scene of war. One of the servants brought candles into the library and relighted the fire. But Robert Audley did not stir from his seat by the hearth. He sat as he had often sat in his chambers at Figtree Court, with his elbows resting upon the arms of his chair, and his chin upon his hand. But he lifted his head as the servant was about to leave the room. "'Can I send a message from here to London?' he asked. "'It can be sent from Brentwood, sir, not from here.' Mr. Audley looked at his watch thoughtfully. "'One of the men can ride over to Brentwood, sir, if you wish any message to be sent.' "'I do wish to send a message. Will you manage it for me, Richards?' "'Certainly, sir.' "'You can wait, then, while I write the message.' "'Yes, sir.' The man brought writing materials from one of the side-tables, and placed them before Mr. Audley. Robert dipped a pen in the ink, and stared thoughtfully at one of the candles for a few moments before he began to write. The message ran thus. "'From Robert Audley, of Audley Court, Essex, to Francis Wilmington, of Paper Buildings, Temple. Dear Wilmington, if you know any physician experienced in cases of mania, and to be trusted with a secret, be so good as to send me his address by telegraph." Mr. Audley sealed this document in a stout envelope, and handed it to the man with a sovereign. "'You will see that this is given to a trustworthy person, Richards,' he said, and let the man wait at the station for the return message. He ought to get it in an hour and a half." Mr. Richards, who had known Robert Audley in jackets and turned-down collars, departed to execute his commission. Heaven forbid that we should follow him into the comfortable servants' hall at the court, where the household sat round the blazing fire, discussing in utter bewilderment the events of the day. Nothing could be wider from the truth than the speculations of these worthy people. What clue had they to the mystery of that firelit room, in which a guilty woman had knelt at their master's feet to tell the story of her sinful life? They only knew that which Sir Michael's valet had told them of his sudden journey. How his master was as pale as a sheet, and spoke in a strange voice that didn't sound like his own, somehow, and how you might have knocked him, Mr. Parsons the valet, 
down with a feather, if you had been minded to prostrate him by the aid of so feeble a weapon. The wise heads of the servants' hall decided that Sir Michael had received sudden intelligence through Mr. Robert. They were wise enough to connect the young man with the catastrophe, either of the death of some near and dear relation. The elder servants decimated the Audley family in their endeavours to find a likely relation, or of some alarming fall in the funds, or of the failure of some speculation or bank in which the greater part of the baronet's money was invested. The general leaning was toward the failure of a bank, and every member of the assembly seemed to take a dismal and raven-like delight in the fancy, though such a supposition involved their own ruin in the general destruction of that liberal household. Robert sat by the dreary hearth, which seemed dreary even now when the blaze of a great wood fire roared in the wide chimney, and listened to the low wail of the march wind moaning round the house, and lifting the shivering ivy from the walls it sheltered. He was tired and worn out, for remember that he had been awakened from his sleep at two o'clock that morning by the hot breath of blazing timber and the sharp crackling of burning woodwork. But for his presence of mind and cool decision, Mr. Luke Marks would have died a dreadful death. He still bore the traces of the night's peril, for the dark hair had been singed upon one side of his forehead, and his left hand was red and inflamed, from the effect of the scorching atmosphere out of which he had dragged the landlord of the castle inn. He was thoroughly exhausted with fatigue and excitement, and he fell into a heavy sleep in his easy-chair before the bright fire, from which he was only awakened by the entrance of Mr. Richards with the return message. This return message was very brief. "'Dear Audley, always glad to oblige. Alwyn Mosgrave, M.D., 12 Savile Row. Safe.' This, with names and addresses, was all that it contained. "'I shall want another message taken to Brentwood to-morrow morning, Richards,' said Mr. Audley, as he folded the telegram. "'I should be glad if the man would ride over with it before breakfast. He shall have half a sovereign for his trouble.' Mr. Richards bowed. "'Thank you, sir. Not necessary, sir. But as you please, of course, sir,' he murmured. "'At what hour might you wish the man to go?' Mr. Audley might wish the man to go as early as he could— so it was decided that he should go at six. "'My room is ready, I suppose, Richards,' said Robert. "'Yes, sir, your old room.' "'Very good. I shall go to bed at once. Bring me a glass of brandy and water as hot as you can make it, and wait for the telegram.' This second message was only a very earnest request to Dr. Mosgrave to pay an immediate visit to Audley Court on a matter of serious moment. Having written this message, Mr. Audley felt that he had done all that he could do. He drank his brandy and water. He had actual need of the diluted alcohol, for he had been chilled to the bone by his adventures during the fire. He slowly sipped the pale golden liquid, and thought of Clara Tallboys, of that earnest girl whose brother's memory was now avenged, whose brother's destroyer was humiliated in the dust. Had she heard of the fire at the Castle Inn? How could she have done otherwise than hear of it in such a place as Mount Stanning? But had she heard that he had been in danger, and that he had distinguished himself by the rescue of a drunken boor? I fear that, even sitting by that desolate hearth, and beneath the roof whose noble was an exile from his own house, Robert Audley was weak enough to think of these things, weak enough to let his fancy wander away to the dismal fir-trees under the cold March sky, and the dark brown eyes that were so like the eyes of his lost friend. End of chapter 35 Chapter thirty six of Lady Audley's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Lady Audley's Secret 
by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter thirty six. Dr. Mosgrave's advice. My lady slept. Through that long winter night she slept soundly. Criminals have often so slept their last sleep upon earth, and have been found in the gray morning slumbering peacefully by the jailer who came to wake them. The game had been played and lost. I do not think that my lady had thrown away a card, or missed the making of a trick which she might by any possibility have made, but her opponent's hand had been too powerful for her, and he had won. She looked upon herself as a species of state prisoner, who would have to be taken good care of, a second iron mask, who must be provided for in some comfortable place of confinement. She abandoned herself to a dull indifference. She had lived a hundred lives within the space of the last few days of her existence, and she had worn out her capacity for suffering, for a time at least. She ate her breakfast, and took her morning bath, and emerged with perfumed hair and in the most exquisitely careless of morning toilets, from her luxurious dressing-room. She looked at herself in the cheval-glass before she left the room. A long night's rest had brought back the delicate rose tints of her complexion, and the natural luster of her blue eyes. That unnatural light which had burned so fearfully the day before had gone, and my lady smiled triumphantly, as she contemplated the reflection of her beauty. The days were gone in which her enemies could have branded her with white-hot irons, and burned away the loveliness which had done such mischief. Whatever they did to her, they must leave her her beauty, she thought. At the worst, they were powerless to rob her of that. The March day was bright and sunny, with a cheerless sunshine, certainly. My lady wrapped herself in an Indian shawl, a shawl that had cost Sir Michael a hundred guineas. I think she had an idea that it would be well to wear this costly garment, so that if hustled suddenly away, she might carry at least one of her possessions with her. Remember how much she had periled for a fine house and gorgeous furniture, for carriages and horses, jewels and laces, and do not wonder if she clings with a desperate tenacity to gauds and gewgaws in the hour of her despair. If she had been Judas, she would have held to her thirty pieces of silver to the last moment of her shameful life. Mr. Robert Audley breakfasted in the library. He sat long over his solitary cup of tea, smoking his meerschaum pipe, and meditating darkly upon the task that lay before him. "'I will appeal to the experience of this Dr. Mosgrave,' he thought. "'Physicians and lawyers are the confessors of this prosaic nineteenth century. Surely he will be able to help me.' The first fast train from London arrived at Audley at half-past ten o'clock, and at five minutes before eleven, Richards, the grave servant, announced Dr. Alwyn Mosgrave. The physician from Savile Row was a tall man of about fifty years of age. He was thin and sallow, with lantern jaws, and eyes of a pale, feeble grey that seemed as if they had once been blue, and had faded by the progress of time to their present neutral shade. However powerful the science of medicine as wielded by Dr. Alwyn Mosgrave, it had not been strong enough to put flesh upon his bones, or brightness into his face. He had a strangely expressionless, and yet strangely attentive, countenance. He had the face of a man who had spent the greater part of his life in listening to other people, and who had parted with his own individuality and his own passions at the very outset of his career. He bowed to Robert Audley, took the opposite seat indicated by him, and addressed his attentive face to the young barrister. Robert saw that the physician's glance for a moment lost its quiet look of attention, and became earnest and searching. "'He is wondering whether I am the patient,' thought Mr. Audley and is looking for the diagnoses of madness in my face." Dr. Mosgrave spoke as if in answer to this thought. "'Is it not about your own health that you wish to consult me?' he said interrogatively. 
"'Oh, no!' Dr. Mosgrave looked at his watch, a fifty-guinea Benson-made chronometer, which he carried loose in his waistcoat pocket, as carelessly as if it had been a potato. "'I need not remind you that my time is precious,' he said. "'Your telegram informed me that my services were required in a case of—danger, as I apprehend, or I should not be here this morning.' Robert Audley had sat looking gloomily at the fire, wondering how he should begin the conversation, and had needed this reminder of the physician's presence. "'You are very good, Dr. Mosgrave,' he said, rousing himself by an effort, "'and I thank you very much for having responded to my summons. I am about to appeal to you upon a subject which is more painful to me than words can describe. I am about to implore your advice in a most difficult case, and I trust almost blindly to your experience to rescue me, and others who are very dear to me, from a cruel and complicated position.' The business-like attention in Dr. Mosgrave's face grew into a look of interest as he listened to Robert Audley. "'The revelation made by the patient to the physician is, I believe, as sacred as the confession of a penitent to his priest,' Robert asked gravely. "'Quite as sacred.' "'A solemn confidence to be violated under no circumstances.' "'Most certainly.' Robert Audley looked at the fire again. How much should he tell, or how little, of the dark history of his uncle's second wife? "'I have been given to understand, Dr. Mosgrave, that you have devoted much of your attention to the treatment of insanity.' "'Yes, my practice is almost confined to the treatment of mental diseases.' "'Such being the case, I think I may venture to conclude that you sometimes receive strange, and even terrible, revelations.' Dr. Mosgrave bowed. He looked like a man who could have carried, safely locked in his passionless breast, the secrets of a nation, and who would have suffered no inconvenience from the weight of such a burden. "'The story which I am about to tell you is not my own story,' said Robert, after a pause. "'You will forgive me, therefore, if I once more remind you that I can only reveal it upon the understanding that under no circumstances, or upon no apparent justification, is that confidence to be betrayed.' Dr. Mosgrave bowed again, a little sternly, perhaps, this time. "'I am all attention, Mr. Audley,' he said coldly. Robert Audley drew his chair nearer to that of the physician— and in a low voice began the story which my lady had told upon her knees in that same chamber upon the previous night. Dr. Mosgrave's listening face, turned always toward the speaker, betrayed no surprise at that strange revelation. He smiled once, a grave, quiet smile, when Mr. Audley came to that part of the story which told of the conspiracy at Ventnor. But he was not surprised. Robert Audley ended his story at the point at which Sir Michael Audley had interrupted my lady's confession. He told nothing of the disappearance of George Tallboys, nor of the horrible suspicions that had grown out of that disappearance. He told nothing of the fire at the Castle Inn. Dr. Mosgrave shook his head gravely when Mr. Audley came to the end of his story. "'You have nothing further to tell me?' he said. "'No, I do not think there is anything more that need be told,' Robert answered, rather evasively. "'You would wish to prove that this lady is mad.' "'and therefore irresponsible for her actions, Mr. Audley,' said the physician. Robert Audley stared, wondering at the mad doctor. By what process had he so rapidly arrived at the young man's secret desire? "'Yes. I would rather, if possible, think her mad. I should be glad to find that excuse for her.' "'And to save the esclandre of a chancery suit, I suppose, Mr. Audley,' said Dr. Mosgrave. Robert shuddered as he bowed in assent to this remark. It was something worse than a chancery suit that he dreaded with a horrible fear. It was a trial for murder that had so long haunted his dreams. How often had he awoke, 
in an agony of shame, from a vision of a crowded courthouse, and his uncle's wife in a criminal dock, hemmed in on every side by a sea of eager faces. "'I fear that I shall not be of any use to you,' the physician said quietly. "'I will see the lady, if you please, but I do not believe that she is mad.' "'Why not?' "'Because there is no evidence of madness in anything she has done. She ran away from her home, because her home was not a pleasant one, and she left in the hope of finding a better. There is no madness in that. She committed the crime of bigamy, because by that crime she obtained fortune and position. There is no madness there. When she found herself in a desperate position, she did not grow desperate. She employed intelligent means, and she carried out a conspiracy which required coolness and deliberation in its execution. There is no madness in that. But the traits of hereditary insanity may descend to the third generation, and appear in the lady's children if she have any. Madness is not necessarily transmitted from mother to daughter. I should be glad to help you if I could, Mr. Audley, but I do not think there is any proof of insanity in the story you have told me. I do not think any jury in England would accept the plea of insanity in such a case as this. The best thing you can do with this lady is to send her back to her first husband, if he will have her." Robert started at this sudden mention of his friend. "'Her first husband is dead,' he answered. "'At least he has been missing for some time, and I have reason to believe that he is dead.' Dr. Mosgrave saw the startled movement, and heard the embarrassment in Robert Audley's voice as he spoke of George Talboys. "'The lady's first husband is missing,' he said, with a strange emphasis on the word. "'You think that he is dead?' He paused for a few moments, and looked at the fire, as Robert had looked before. "'Mr. Audley,' he said presently, "'there must be no half-confidences between us. You have not told me all.' Robert, looking up suddenly, plainly expressed in his face the surprise he felt at these words. "'I should be very poorly able to meet the contingencies of my professional experience,' said Dr. Mosgrave, "'if I could not perceive where confidence ends and reservation begins.' You have only told me half this lady's story, Mr. Audley. You must tell me more before I can offer you any advice. What has become of the first husband?" He asked this question in a decisive tone, as if he knew it to be the keystone of an arch. "'I have already told you, Dr. Mosgrave, that I do not know.' "'Yes,' answered the physician. "'But your face has told me what you have withheld from me. It has told me that you suspect.' Robert Audley was silent. "'If I am to be of any use to you, you must trust me, Mr. Audley,' said the physician. "'The first husband disappeared. How and when? I want to know the history of his disappearance.' Robert paused for some time before he replied to this speech, but by and by he lifted his head, which had been bent in an attitude of earnest thought, and addressed the physician. "'I will trust you, Dr. Mosgrave,' he said. "'I will confide entirely in your honour and goodness.' I do not ask you to do any wrong to society, but I ask you to save our stainless name from degradation and shame, if you can do so conscientiously." He told the story of George's disappearance, and of his own doubts and fears, heaven knows how reluctantly. Dr. Mosgrave listened as quietly as he had listened before. Robert concluded with an earnest appeal to the physician's best feelings. He implored him to spare the generous old man whose fatal confidence in a wicked woman had brought such misery upon his declining years. It was impossible to draw any conclusion, either favourable or otherwise, from Dr. Mosgrave's attentive face. He rose when Robert had finished speaking, and looked at his watch once more. 
"'I can only spare you twenty minutes,' he said. "'I will see the lady, if you please. You say her mother died in a madhouse?' "'She did. Will you see Lady Audley alone?' "'Yes, alone, if you please.' Robert rung for my lady's maid, and under convoy of that smart young damsel, the physician found his way to the octagon antechamber, and the fairy boudoir with which it communicated. Ten minutes afterward, he returned to the library, in which Robert sat waiting for him. "'I have talked to the lady,' he said quietly, "'and we understand each other very well. There is latent insanity—insanity which might never appear, or which might appear only once or twice in a lifetime. It would be a dementia in its worst phase, perhaps, acute mania, but its duration would be very brief, and it would only arise under extreme mental pressure. The lady is not mad, but she has the hereditary taint in her blood. She has the cunning of madness with the prudence of intelligence. I will tell you what she is, Mr. Audley. She is dangerous." Dr. Mosgrave walked up and down the room once or twice before he spoke again. "'I will not discuss the probabilities of the suspicion which distresses you, Mr. Audley,' he said presently. "'But I will tell you this much. I do not advise any esclandre. This Mr. George Tallboys has disappeared, but you have no evidence of his death. If you could produce evidence of his death, you could produce no evidence against this lady, beyond the one fact that she had a powerful motive for getting rid of him. No jury in the United Kingdom would condemn her upon such evidence as that." Robert Audley interrupted Dr. Mosgrave hastily. "'I assure you, my dear sir,' he said, "'that my greatest fear is the necessity of any exposure, any disgrace.' "'Certainly, Mr. Audley,' answered the physician coolly, "'but you cannot expect me to assist you to condone one of the worst offences against society. If I saw adequate reason for believing that a murder had been committed by this woman, I should refuse to assist you in smuggling her away out of the reach of justice, although the honour of a hundred noble families might be saved by my doing so. But I do not see adequate reason for your suspicions, and I will do my best to help you." Robert Audley grasped the physician's hands in both his own. "'I will thank you when I am better able to do so,' he said, with emotion. "'I will thank you in my uncle's name as well as in my own.' "'I have only five minutes more, and I have a letter to write,' said Dr. Mosgrave, smiling at the young man's energy. He seated himself at the writing-table in the window, dipped his pen in the ink, and wrote rapidly for about seven minutes. He had filled three sides of a sheet of note-paper, when he threw down his pen and folded his letter. He put this letter into an envelope, and delivered it unsealed to Robert Audley. The address which it bore was, Monsieur Val, Villebrumeuse, Belgium.' Mr. Audley looked rather doubtfully from this address to the doctor, who was putting on his gloves as deliberately as if his life had never known a more solemn purpose than the proper adjustment of them. "'That letter,' he said, in answer to Robert Audley's inquiring look, "'is written to my friend Monsieur Val, the proprietor and medical superintendent of a very excellent maison de santé in the town of Villebrumeuse. We have known each other for many years, and he will no doubt willingly receive Lady Audley into his establishment.' and charge himself with the full responsibility of her future life. It will not be a very eventful one." Robert Audley would have spoken. He would have once more expressed his gratitude for the help which had been given to him, but Dr. Mosgrave checked him with an authoritative gesture. "'From the moment in which Lady Audley enters that house,' he said, "'her life, so far as life is made up of action and variety, will be finished. Whatever secrets she may have will be secrets for ever. Whatever crimes she may have committed, she will be able to commit no more. If you were to dig a grave for her in the nearest churchyard, and bury her alive in it, 
you could not more safely shut her from the world and all worldly associations. But as a physiologist, and as an honest man, I believe you could do no better service to society than by doing this, for physiology is a lie if the woman I saw ten minutes ago is a woman to be trusted at large. If she could have sprung at my throat and strangled me with her little hands, as I sat talking to her just now, she would have done it. She suspected your purpose, then. She knew it. You think I am mad like my mother, and you have come to question me, she said. You are watching for some sign of the dreadful taint in my blood. Good day to you, Mr. Audley, the physician added hurriedly. My time was up ten minutes ago. It is as much as I shall do to catch the train. End of chapter 36「Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.